Well, if you have your Bibles, 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, uh, as we begin this time of hearing from God's Word, let me encourage you to pin this screen that will help as you listen. Also, if you do want to keep your camera on, it reminds us communally that together we actively listen to God's Word as God's people. And so 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, let me read that for you now. If you don't have a Bible, it will come up on the screen for you. We continue in our series as John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, Christ City, what will be the reason this thing does not work? What will be the reason this thing does not work out? And by thing, I mean this church. I mean this community, this group of people located in East Vancouver and currently on Zoom for worship, word, and sacrament. What will be the reason this thing does not work? And you might say, well, Jake, there are a number of reasons why this thing doesn't work. Maybe if the government turns on us, if there's openly hostile persecution of Christians in British Columbia, in Canada, that might do us in. And to which I would respond with examples of growing churches in China and Iran and other areas where violent persecution is an everyday reality of life. And be forced to respond to your comment, no, I don't think that's why this won't work. Okay, you might retort. Perhaps if we don't ever find a permanent building, People will get sick of renting a place and, and setting up, and, and that's why this thing won't work. And, and to that, I might concede that a place of permanence is a place that is important, no doubt, has good inroads in a community. But I don't think renting or owning is what makes or breaks a church. In fact, there's a good amount of data to show that a church that sets up every week maintains its missional edge, gets comfortable less quickly or apathetic less quickly. And so again, I ask, what will be the reason this thing does not work out? And to remind you what we're here for, let me just put our mission statement up on the screen for us for a second. Our mission statement as we've recently articulated it, goes like this. We are missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. 
We are missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. That's what we're doing. And so I could put my question like this. Ready? What will be the reason that you and I on this call right now are not transformed into maturing missional disciples? And what will be the reason our neighborhood remains unaffected by our witness? The answer that John gives us this morning is not a popular one. It's not a nice one. It's not a kind of answer you give if you want to sell books or be influential or be considered an innovator. The thing threatening our thing, our growth, our neighborhood's transformation is really simple. John says this morning, the thing that threatens all of this is sin. Is sin. Sin that corrupts our holiness, our familial distinctiveness, and without holiness, without familial distinctiveness, the author of Hebrews tells us, no one will see God. If sin is the reason this thing will not work out, we should not glaze over sin this morning. Instead, with John, we're being invited to understand sin, what he'll call lawlessness, just a bit more deeply. Here's our outline today. It will come up on the screen for you. Three questions I want to ask of our text this morning. First, what is sin? What is sin? And how is John specifically defining it here in this context? Second, how is it destroyed? Right? That's an important question to ask. How is it destroyed? How, how do we overcome sin? Or, or do we? And thirdly and finally, where is it in us? So what is sin? How is sin destroyed? And, and where is sin in, in, in us and among us? So first question. Bible's open again, 1 John 3. I want to read verses 4 and verse 8 with you. Look there. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And look at verse 8 with me. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In these two verses, John answers two questions concerning the nature of sin. And the first question is this, what is the fundamental quality of sin? What is the, the essence of sin, we could ask? And John tells us in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here's his definition. Here's what John says the essence of sin is. He says, sin is lawlessness. So, so John's saying that sin is not only something deficient in us, missing the mark, so to speak, but also sin is an active, a participatory rebellion that's ongoing against the will of God. It is the active rebellion against the will of God. That's what's meant by this word lawlessness. And this is very different if we go back to the context of 1 John than what the false teachers were teaching concerning sin. If you remember, the false teachers were convinced and they were convincing others that for the truly anointed, the truly spiritual, had the special gnosis or knowledge, sin no longer existed. 
And if sin no longer existed, if that was an old, archaic, you know, immature category, then you could live however you wanted. You could do whatever you wanted to do. And John's response is not only, we should see this, hey, sin exists and it matters how you live, but more to the point, the reason you sin, John says, is because you and I, outside of Jesus, are all inclined towards actively rebelling against God's will. All inclined towards lawlessness, John says. See, the story of sin in this world is the story of all humanity with all their strength opposing the all-encompassing rule of God. Let me say that again. The story of sin is a story of all humanity with all of their strength opposing the all-encompassing rule of God. And it's a different narrative. You should notice this. It's a different narrative than the victim narrative that we are typically fed, given in this world. I don't know if you've ever said no to a child who is unfamiliar with that word. You ever done that before? Said no to a child who's unfamiliar with that word. Uh, to a child who's used to being the sovereign ruler and king of their own universe. And even though you're no in these moments, if you're a good parent or a good babysitter or just a good supervisor, even though your no is in the best interest of the child and, and other people, what is the response of this sovereign child ruler to the word no? Parents, help me out. Throwing a fit, going hysterical, kicking and screaming and flailing and yelling and, and pushing against, slamming of doors, determined to get what they want however they can. This is lawlessness. But the reality, as we look at the Bible, is that this is not only an individual reality, but a corporate, world-encompassing, hostile disposition toward the Lord. Look at Psalm 2. There we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Sin, John says, is lawlessness. It's an individual reality and an entire world-encompassing reality. This active rebellion against God. The world outside of Christ is not neutral to the things of God and to his ways and to his will, but is actively opposed to him, actively working against him, asserting themselves and their own desires and their own wishes over and against his. But there's a second thing that John answers in these two verses, verses four and verse eight. Where does this come from? Where does this lawlessness start, we could say? Look again at verse 8 of 1 John 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, John says, is of the devil. And then he says this, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, while humanity 
is responsible for their kicking and screaming and flailing against God. Sin did not begin with man. John tells us here that sin began with the devil who was sinning from the beginning. And the devil is already a character we've seen in 1 John so far. In the biblical narrative, we encounter Satan, uh, the devil, right? Firstly, in the context of tempting Adam and Eve to go against God, to rebel, to be lawless against God in the garden. This is the first occurrence that we find in the Bible. So before Adam and Eve and before humanity actively rebelled against God, Satan and other fallen angels had already done so. One theologian, he put it like this, sin did not break out on earth in the first instance, but in heaven, in the immediate presence of God and at the foot of his throne. John tells us that it is with Satan that rebellion begins. And it's Satan's mission to ensure the rebellion personally and and globally continues. In Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer, we, we learn that Satan tempts believers into lawlessness. That's part of what he does. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan a murderer. In Revelation 9, verse 11, he's called uh, the destroyer. In that same passage in John 8, Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. And Satan is all those things, tempter, murderer, destroyer, liar, accuser, and more. But that is not the offensive part about our passage this morning. That's not the offensive part about our passage this morning. See, few in our day would be upset to hear me slander this spiritual entity they barely believe in. But what's offensive about our passage this morning is that John says that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In other words, let me translate. When you continually and unrepentantly and habitually rebel against the revealed will of God, you show that your familial resemblance is not only not of God, but of Satan. Now that is offensive. Let's go back to John 8. In John 8, we see just how offensive this is in action. Jesus essentially is saying what John says here to a group of religious people. A group of religious people who are claiming Abraham as their father, as their spiritual forefather, and God as their ultimate father. And Jesus to these religious people says, no, nope, Uh uh-uh. Look at John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And what does the crowd do in response? If you read the story in John 8, you know they accuse Jesus first of of having a demon, of being demon-possessed. And then secondly, when Jesus says, no, not only do I not have a demon, but I'm actually the son of God, in John 8, 59, we read this. So they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, to murder him. But Jesus, and this is such a funny word to read in the Bible, he hid himself and went out of the temple. They tried to kill him. And if you're still having a hard time as to why this is so offensive, let me bring John 8 and 1 John 3 into the 21st century for us. Picture with me this. 
If you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. Jesus stands before us and he asks, are you righteous? Yes, we reply. We know we are righteous because, and so we list, in our spare time, we volunteer weekly at the soup kitchen down the road. Yes, we reply, we know we are righteous because in our work time, we labor for the oppressed and the marginalized in the world. Yes, we reply, we are righteous because in our relational time, we are tolerant, open, hospitable, generous, and altogether a person of peace. And Jesus will say unto them, and what do you make of me? Who do you say I am? To which our culture responds, Jesus, you're, you're a good deal of many things. A great teacher, wise sage, inspirational figure, a bobblehead sometimes. But Lord, Son of God? No, we don't believe that. To these people in our day, Jesus speaks the words of, of John 8. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Well, you don't. So you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Do you see how offensive this is? Sin is active rebellion against God, originating from Satan and master and Lord over all those who do not proclaim Jesus as Lord. These, John says, are children of the devil. That's what sin is. Sin is not just that whoopsie or that mistake or that wrong word at the wrong time, though those can be sin. No, sin is the way of this world. It's the water we swim in. It's the inclination and disposition of all who have ever taken a breath. It's lawlessness. It is a refusal to submit to the lordship of Jesus, to the one who made us and knows us. And, and in view of such a powerful force like sin, behind which stands such a powerful entity like Satan, what hope do you and I have this morning? Well, go with me to point two. And point two, we ask the very important, very pressing question, how is sin destroyed? How is sin destroyed? John tells us, 1 John 3, verse 5 and verse 8. Let's read those together. You know that he appeared, this is Jesus, that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Look at the second half of verse eight, of verse eight now. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This week, John uses the word appeared, past tense, to refer to Jesus' incarnation. So last week was Jesus' second appearing. This week is referring back to his first appearing, his incarnation. And why did Jesus come to earth in full humanity? It was, John says, in order to take away sins. It was, John says, to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, both of these things, the taking away of sins and the destroying of the works of the devil, both of these things happen in one single act. 
Paul tells the story this way. Look at Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, read lawlessness. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, and what's the event? Listen, friends, nailing it to the cross. And at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our sins nailed to the cross. Spiritual rulers, authorities, principalities and powers, the devil himself defeated at the cross. And it was not through lawlessness that this happened, but by step-by-step downward obedience of Jesus. It is through the obedience of Jesus that our lawlessness is finally overcome. And it was a downward obedience, incarnation, lowly life in Nazareth, temptation and opposition, disparagement and persecution, agony in Gethsemane, condemnation before the crowd, crucifixion, death, and burial. It is through this downward obedience that Jesus heals us from our lawlessness. It's through this downward step-by-step obedience that the believer is free from the devil and his works. Friends, has there ever been anyone like Jesus before? Has there ever been anyone like Jesus? Jesus, who through his death and resurrection has defeated Satan. Jesus, who through his death and resurrection empowers you and me to right now defeat Satan. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand today, right now, against the schemes of the devil. Jesus, who through his death and resurrection will defeat Satan. John sees in Revelation 20, the devil, the deceiver of the nations, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, I ask, has there ever been anyone like Jesus? Where all of humanity up until Jesus is defined by lawlessness, in Jesus we find obedience. Perfect humble submission to the will of his Father. Now, Jesus is unique in his downward step-by-step obedience. But John tells us that because of the unique work of Jesus' obedience, you and I are able to live righteously and obediently today. This is our last point and last question. Number three, where is sin in us? Where is sin in us? Our new identity as children of God is incompatible with habitual and continual sinning. I hope that's been very clear so far. Our new identity is incompatible with habitual and continual sinning. John tells us in verse 9 that the seed of God, his Holy Spirit, resides in us. We have a new childlike identity from which we live. But we also read in verses 6 and 9 again, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I want to just stop there for a second. And I just want you to hear these words of verse 6 again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Again, the idea here is not that we mess up from time to time, but habitual, continual, unrepentant sin before the Father. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It might be that today you discover that you don't know him, that you don't know the Father. And if that's you this morning, I want you to stay on this call. And together we'll confess sin And together we'll come to Jesus. And together we'll believe that his work is enough. I just want to pause there. That wasn't in my notes. Again, we know that John is not saying that Christians are perfect. Remember, he began chapter 2 by saying these words. But if anyone does sin, right? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's one perfectly obedient person, and it's not you, And it's not me, nor will ever be you or me. And yet, as we've seen, if we persist in habitual sin, we demonstrate this evil familial resemblance. John Stott, the great Bible teacher, says it very plainly. Our parentage is either divine or diabolical. It's either divine or it's diabolical. And so I want to end this morning by assuming that many on this call claim divine parentage. And with that in mind, I want to ask all of us, myself included here, where is the sin in us? Where is the sin in me? And instead of letting you or me or our hearts be the arbiter of where sin is, I want you this morning to invite us to God's word. In particular, I want to go to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, we have this long section, sometimes called a vice list. And I want to just work through certain sections of Ephesians 4 and ask the Spirit of God that in this moment, in this time, that he would reveal in me and in us as a community any sins, anything we need to confess and repent of. So I want to begin by going to Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 19. I want to read this with you. Now this I say, Paul writes, and testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's stop there. Uh, there's, there's a show on Amazon Prime right now called It's a Sin. Maybe you know about it. And it's about a group of young gay men at the onset of, the a- of AIDS. And New York Times has called this show, I think honestly, a kind of celebration of freedom and carnality. A celebration of freedom and carnality. And I know about this show because it's the welcome banner 
on my TV every time I turn it on. I'm saying nothing new or shocking to, to say that we live in a world that is callous to healthy sexuality as God designed it. If you've been around here, this is not a surprise to you. But what grieves me and what grieves me this past week are the ways that you and me have become callous along with the world. I, I watched this movie this past week with, with Maisie, my, my wife, uh, and it was fairly tame by modern standards, which is not saying much. But, but I went to bed that night feeling, feeling yucky. And I went to bed having my imagination and my thoughts formed not by scripture, not by loving relationship with my heavenly father, not by loving relationship with my wife, but by two hours of callous, worldly sensuality. And I'm confessing that now because I feel as if this is not only me, this might be an us thing. Have we grown callous along with the world when it comes to notions of sexuality? Let's skip down. Verse 25, let's keep on reading in Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Stop there. We're really good at speaking the truth with our neighbor when the truth serves us, right? When I'm saying something like, this is my truth, and it's this cathartic experience where I can just, bleh, here's my truth, right? That's, a, that, that's how we talk these days. Or when our truth will be vengeful or something like, like that, when it acts in this way. But the truth speaking that Paul has in mind here is one where there is no obvious benefit to us speaking the truth. No obvious benefit for me to speak to you truth. We as Christians speak the truth in the church amongst one another and outside the church to honor the capital T truth and to serve the person in front of you, your neighbor. And so it looks like this. It's telling the truth about a lie that you've been living in for a while, knowing that it will cost you. Or it's refusing to allow a friend to continue living in a lie, to speak the truth to that friend, knowing that the truth might cost that friendship. Do you speak the truth to your neighbor? Do you speak the truth in situations where speaking the truth will only cost you? When speaking the truth is of no worldly benefit to you, no corporate benefit to you, no relational benefit to you, do you speak the truth to your neighbor? Let's go to verse 31. In a flurry, Paul says these words, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that's quarreling, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Spirit of God, would you search us now? And would you reveal where there is bitterness and wrath and anger and quarreling and slander taking up residence in us? Living in us. Defining our relationships at home and at work. Friends, where do we go this morning? Where do we go? Let me invite you back to where John took us earlier. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, take your sin to the cross this morning. Take your sin to the cross of Jesus Christ, where his downward obedience was on full display to counteract and destroy our active rebellion against the Father. And then having done that, let us confess our sins one to another. Let us pick up our mantle as a distinct community of God's children in East Vancouver. And through our spirit-born holiness, our seed-born holiness and distinctness, people will see God. What's our mission statement again? I'll read it for you. We are missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. That is not possible outside of holiness, outside of God's gracious provision of his spirit in our life. It is through a transformed and holy people, God's children, that God has decided to renew the world, to change us, to change you, to change me, to change our neighborhood. Let's pray. So Father, we come this morning perhaps feeling two things. One, quite raw, having seen our sin, having been exposed. But Father, for those of us who are in Christ, that rawness, that being exposed, is immediately met with the hope of the gospel. That because of the work of your son Jesus on the cross, we are clothed with the clothes of your children. We are forgiven. We are made new. Not in order that we might keep on sinning, but that we might walk in acts of righteousness which you predestined for us from before the foundations of the world. And so I pray that we would do that as we abide in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.